Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. People murdering other people and being able to get away with it and the grotesqueness of this all being under an insurance claim really caused all sorts of consternations. I mean, I think it's no exaggeration to say this is one of the most consequential cases, not just in insurance law, but in all of British history. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode I'm joined by a guest and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week we have Professor Trevor Bernard, and we will be discussing the most notorious insurance coverage case in history, Gregson against Gilbert. Trevor is the Wilberforce Professor of Slavery and Emancipation at the University of Hull and the director of the Wilberforce Institute. But he started that many years ago at the University of Otago in his native New Zealand. He's a social historian with interests in slavery and the demography of plantation societies in the Americas. He's written many books, most recently Jamaica in the Age of Revolution, in which there is a chapter on the Zong massacre and the ensuing insurance dispute which is what we're going to be discussing today. So Trevor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, and I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Being a historian, is that something that you, you always knew you wanted to be? I've always been interested in history, I think, is it's a great way to, it's the only subject which allows you to time travel. Um, and I guess I've always been interested in this subject right from uh, my university days. When I, I was enthralled, I remember, by listening to a, a lecturer give a, a discussion of the abolition of slavery. And, and I think one of the things which I always find particularly interesting about this particular subject is how does something which was so accepted by everybody, slavery, uh, and so beneficial to the economy, people in Bristol and Liverpool and London made lots of money from slavery, uh, how, did it, how did it turn to become something which was considered a sin and so quickly? And I guess one of my points from today would be that the Zong, which is the ship which is at, at stake in the Gregson versus Gilbert court case, a sensational trial of 1783, was absolutely decisive in this monumental shift in people's view uh, from seeing slavery as inevitable and necessary and seeing slavery as wrong. In order to put all of this in context, we're going to discuss the Zong massacre itself uh, and, and the, uh, the court case that came afterwards in a moment. But in order to put that into context, could you give us a, a quick thumbnail of the political situation in the 1780s? I think one of the things I'd say is when people have been talking about the Zong case, that they don't take into account when it happened. And it happened at the most fraught time of the American Revolution. The first murder of of enslaved people or captives on the Zong happened on the 29th of November, uh, 1781. It was only a month after Britain had lost the American Revolution with the Battle of Yorktown. French ships were at that stage just moving towards the Caribbean. It looked like Jamaica was going to get taken over and, and, and conquered by the French fleet, which didn't happen due to a, a great victory, the Battle of the Saints in April 1782. But at this stage, Jamaica, was, which was Britain's most valuable and important colony, was in a terrible state. It was a terrible state in a variety of ways. Provisions were low, plantation profits had plummeted, And it meant that for one of its major trades, the slave trade was in great problems. So this was at a a period of great stress within Jamaican society. And could you give us a very quick overview of the North Atlantic trade in in enslaved Africans at at that point? The the slave trade had been kind of developed throughout the the, the 18th century and before, 
what stage in the ebbs and flows of, of it were we at in the 1780s? Well, the 1780s is a, is a sort of a de- decisive period. I mean, Britain has founded itself on being an anti-slavery nation, and there were some people who were anti-slavers uh, in the 1770s and 1780s. Uh, but the great majority of Britons were invested in the slave trade, um, and Britain was the greatest slave trading nation in the world. Before the American Revolution, about 15,000 captives from Africa arrived in Jamaica every year to work on sugar plantations, providing the sugar uh, which satisfied European sweet tooth. During the American Revolution, particularly after France and Spain entered the war to fight Britain after 1778, so the years between 1779 and 1782 were dreadful years for the slave trade. Uh, Insurance rates went sky high. The costs of sending ships from across the Atlantic, from Africa to the Americas, became very difficult. Uh, And slave traders had to, they either failed or if they survived, they restructured their trade. They sent over ships which had larger number of slaves. There were a few slave vessels which had more than 600 captives on board. They sent them under convoy with the Royal Navy, and they concentrated very much on working out how their insurance policies uh, would work in the case that they might be captured, slave ships might be captured by the French or the Spanish or suffer the the new normal, what we call the perils of sea, being lost for a variety of reasons. So it's a particular moment in the history of the slave trade and a particular moment in the history of the British Empire, particularly in Jamaica. And kind of with all of that as background, um, we move on to the actual story of the Zong. Um, So could you talk us through the events, particularly the events of November and December 1781? The journey started in Ghana, didn't it? That's right. That's where they purchased the captives. And talk us through what happened thereafter. It was a ship. The Zong was a, was a Dutch ship, originally called the Zorg, captured in Ghana. And the Gregstons, who wanted to make a bit of profit from the slave trade, these these Liverpool slave traders, used this captured ship to put on a very large number of captives with a very small crew and send them across, ideally, to Kingston. The captain was very inexperienced. The crew were small in number, so it was very undermanned with a, with a large number of captives on the ship. The Zong docked at Antigua, restocked its water, but did not do so very well. It had leaky casts. So by the time they got to Jamaica, the supply of water was going low. Someone on the ship made a catastrophic error, and instead of the ship being on track to dock at Kingston sometime in early November, it found itself on the 29th of November becalmed many miles away from Jamaica, off the southwest of Jamaica. So its closest port would have been Montego Bay in western Jamaica. It was probably 10 days sail from Montego Bay, uh, had a declining water. It had a very small and contentious, they were all fighting with each other, a, a contentious crew, rest of captives uh, and disease threatening. So in a very bad situation. And the crew had three choices that they could have made. The first, the most obvious one was to wait for water to arrive, in other words, rain, and to sail for Montego Bay as quickly as possible or wait for another ship to come by. The second one, which is one you would expect them to do, would be to batten down the hatches so slaves could not escape, except that slaves would die from dehydration and disease. And then when they got to Montego Bay, try and sell as many slaves as they could for whatever price they could get. And that was what normally happened on slave ships in this sort of situation. 
The third one was what they did do, which was to decide to throw overboard 54 women and children in order, they claimed later on, to stop an insurrection, a rebellion. They did this on the 29th of November. They threw over another 42, all men in this occasion, on the 1st of December. And sometime after the 6th of December, they threw over another 26 captives, while 10 Africans threw themselves overboard. And one African was thrown overboard, but managed to hold onto a rope and managed to survive. They then proceeded to a place called Black River, a small hamlet that no one had ever sold slave people before. And on the 9th of January, 1782, they sold the enslaved people that remained, 208, mostly healthy, it seems, for pretty good prices. That meant that with an insurance claim on the enslaved people that had been thrown into the sea in order, as they claimed, to prevent an insurrection, plus the amount of money they got for 208 captives, the result for the slave owners, the Gregsons, was not so much a profit, but was not much for loss, probably a small, tiny profit. Yeah, just talking about these as, as sort of bare facts, it, you know, basically we are talking about the murder of 122 captives. That's right. In essence, aren't we? It, it, it is a truly horrific story from, from beginning to end. Yep. And when the ship returned to Liverpool, the, the owners, um, the Gregsons, who we've mentioned, made a claim on their insurance policy for the 122 murdered Africans. Yeah. Um, and at this point, we should say that the Gregsons were probably the, the leading slave family or one of the leading slavers in, in Liverpool. Reasonably big, but they've been under tough times for, uh, during the American Revolution. So they were, they were pretty desperate. They were under financial pressure, so they needed to make this claim. And over the years, they'd financed 152 voyages. They'd kidnapped and transported over 58,000 Africans during that time, of whom 9,000 had died. But despite all that, or perhaps because of all that, they were part of the the Liverpool elite as well, in that William Gregson, the head of the family, um, had been mayor of Liverpool in, in 1762. So they made their insurance claim, but on what basis... Did they make a claim? How on earth could they argue that the murder of 122 captives was a justified insurance claim? And was that a normal thing at the time? Well, remember one of the things I said just previously, which was that the crew claimed that if they had not done what they did, there would have been a rebellion, an insurrection, to use the words of the time. And it was very well established under insurance law that if there was a rebellion on a slave ship, then the owner of the slave ship was entitled to claim for all people who were lost as a result of that rebellion. And rebellion was pretty frequent. My colleague David Richardson estimates that one out of 10 ships engaged in the African slave trade suffered a rebellion. So this was a a pretty normal claim. Quite often, the claims were, like the claim for the Zong, quite dodgy. I mean, there are a number of cases where it seems clear that sailors who knew about this rule of insurance claim would make enslaved people walk the plank or kill them in some way or other and then claim on them later on. And insurers, in most cases, tended to hold their nose and pay out because the values of the policies, the value of the trade was so great. Perhaps £100 million, the whole income of Britain, was in marine insurance in this particular time. And the slave trade was the biggest trade within that marine insurance. So that the occasional losses that insurers had to do due to dodgy claims was probably worth paying in normal cases for the 
huge amount of money in terms of insurance premiums that they received from the slave trade in general. What we're saying is, is that the, the, the standard approach at the time was that captives were not treated as human beings, they were treated as cargo. And therefore, as I think Lord Mansfield says later on, it was treated in exactly the same way as if a horse had been thrown overboard. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly the case, which is one reason why this case horrified the, the British public so much, to treat individuals as if they were horses. Exactly. So we've said it was a fairly uh, a normal insurance claim on one level, and that you know, a lot of these insurance claims, obviously happening on the seas, many miles away from London, had a slightly dodgy feel to them. So what was it? In, do we know why on this particular occasion that the, the underwriter, Mr. Gilbert, didn't pay up? What was it that made him smell a rat? Well, I don't have any, any information about what the underwriter was thinking in, in refusing the claim. It'd be very interesting to find that out. But I say one thing about the insurance claim and then perhaps some speculations as to why he refused to pay. The first one was that, yes, that these types of insurance on slave ships and, and insurance on a loss of cargo, as they put it, was very normal. But this was a very unusual insurance contract because it was what we might call a future contract. Instead of the claim being based on the value of the loss, the enslaved person or the captive, uh, at the point of the loss, the value was based on how much that person would have fetched if that person had gone for sale. So there was every incentive for the crew of the Zong to make sure that what they wanted to have is as high prices as possible for the remaining slaves that they took to Black River, because each of those slaves had an average value, in this case quite high, £30 per enslaved person, which would be the basis of the insurance claim. So the nature of the insurance claim would have, I, I suspect, would have led the underwriter to think that there is problems here, because they immediately see that there was an incentive to the crew to murder slaves, claim there was an insurrection, get a high price for those slaves that remained when they were sold in Black River and then collect on the insurance claim. So I think that for the underwriter, he smelled a rat because of the particular nature of the insurance claim and the particular ways in which the ship had taken a long time to get there and the particular nature of the slave sale that occurred. We do need to remember, though, in terms of the, of the court case, that everybody lied. We can't trust anybody involved in the court case whatsoever. Perhaps we can trust Lord Mansfield. But otherwise, uh, certainly all the crew placed most of the blame on the captain who had conveniently died, and they blamed everybody else when they came to, to court as well. Which says something also, I think, about how likely it was it was an insurance scam. You mentioned earlier on that the, the, the initial tranche of murders was 54 people, but it was women and children. It was, it was the least valuable so, which once again said, they're not really worried about an insurrection here. It was a way of manipulating the, the prices. Exactly. That's the obvious thing, that it, it's fairly clear as a way of manipulating the prices, because if you were worried about a rebellion, you would have thrown men over. And the other thing, of course, is that when the insurance claims for losses based on rebellion came from real rebellions. I mean, they came from when there was actual insurrections. And what the crew claimed was that there would be an insurrection if we hadn't taken this action. In other words, they're anticipating future events that never happened. There was no insurrection on the Zong, neither on the 29th of November or until the 22nd of December when it, it, it docked at Black River. And I think you've also done a calculation, which is that the 54 deaths in the first tranche is almost exactly 
equal to the premium for the insurance policy, which was £1,680. In other words, it, it stinks because they murdered the wrong people, if, if one can say it in those sorts of terms, and they also murdered exactly the right number to cover the insurance premium to make sure that it would be least likely to be challenged on the basis that insurers wouldn't actually be suffering a loss at, at that stage. That, that's right. I mean, it's absolutely right. But that was one reason why the Zong got such attention is because it became pretty clear to everybody that this was a manipulation. And the fact that, that, that people were talking about these types of manipulations in regard to human beings seemed especially outrageous. But if, if I was an underwriter, I would have thought the same sort of thing. So anyway, we have a situation where the Gregsons make a claim under their policy and where the underwriter, Mr. Gilbert, denies that claim. He declines cover. So we all trundle off to court in the way you know, which we do nowadays and in which the way it was done back in 1783. Um, and he went to court in the case of Gregson against Gilbert. Now, we have to repeat, this was not a murder trial. It was a civil trial dealing with an insurance coverage dispute and a marine insurance fraud. And the trial was nonetheless in front of a jury. That's how they did it in those days. And we've already mentioned how the Gregsons basically argued that their case, that there was a fear of insurrection, a lack of water. Effectively, they had to do it. It was a peril of the sea and therefore it was a, a, an insured loss. So what was the jury's decision? Well, we should mention about the sources here because that, what, you, what you summarise is exactly true. And the jury said, yes, they accepted that the slave owner's case, they accepted that there was to be an insurrection, that the throwing of the captors overboard was a, the right thing to do and that therefore they were entitled to get their money. But we don't have any information about this. We don't know anything other than the result. What we do know is that this caused consternation within some people, particularly among a black abolitionist called Alado Equiano, who when the trial came up in front of Britain's greatest judge, Lord Mansfield, who actually presided over the first trial as well. But when it came up again, when the, when the Gregsons appealed the verdict, Equiano alerted one of the early and greatest abolitionists, a man named Granville Sharp, uh, to come along. And what we know about the Zong case and why it became so famous is that Sharp took notes of all the evidence and therefore that evidence was put forward to newspapers and it became an increasingly important case. But we don't know much about the first case because it was just a standard sort of insurance one. No one really thought very much about it. It's the second case uh, which attracted all the attention. In other words, the appeal that the Gilberts made against a, a verdict they thought was incorrect. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, although we don't know the details of the first decision, the outcome was the jury decided in favour of the slave traders against the insurers, even though the whole thing stank. That's right. They almost always did. It would have been, if it hadn't gone to the second case, it would have been a very normal case. There were many cases like this uh, where dodgy insurance scams were passed and slave traders got their money and insurers had to pay up. But Gilbert did appeal and it came before Lord Mansfield. Um, no relation. Mansfield wasn't his surname. So that he, sadly, he's not kind of dim distant in my past. But so it came before Lord Mansfield in the Court of King's Bench. And during this hearing, one crucial fact came to light, didn't it? That hadn't been, well, as far as we are aware, had not been presented in the original case. And what was that one fact? Well, the one fact that came forward was that before the third tranche of captives had been thrown off board and 10 people threw themselves off as suicides, 
uh, sometime between the 6th and 9th of December. Remember, the first murder is on the 29th, the second is on the 1st. The third one is sometimes around about the, the 9th, 10th of, of December. But before that, it had rained. And this wrecked the crew's case because the crew had, had based their whole case on saying that there was likely to be an insurrection because the water they'd taken on board from Antigua in these leaky cases was diminishing rapidly and therefore enraged captives without any water would have stormed the ship and caused a rebellion. But of course, if it rained, it became very clear uh, that the crew were lying about what their intentions were and that the idea of an insurrection was uh, an insurance scam. At this point, we should provide a little bit of background about um, Lord Mansfield himself. Um, You've already described him as as the greatest judge of the 18th century, and I think that's how he's generally regarded. And he was no particular friend of of slavery, was he? Because um, a few years earlier, there'd been a very famous case called the the Somerset case, where he held that a, a slave's imprisonment in England was unlawful, which sort of opened the way to the end of slavery on, on UK soil. But yet he was also a very, very pro-business judge. And he, you know, his decisions have laid the foundations for commercial and insurance law over the next 300 years. So there were these two sides to, be, to his character, wasn't he? That there's the slightly humanitarian side, but the very business side, the very commercial side. And I'm hoping that at this point in, in this horrific story, that his humanitarian side wins out, that, that Lord Mansfield throws out the Gregson's case and orders that, that the crew be tried for murder. That's what I want to happen. Is it? Uh, you're going to be disappointed, I'm afraid. Um, Mansfield is indeed Britain's greatest judge, and he's indeed not someone who was in favour of slavery. So he was personally against slavery, inclined towards anti-slavery. But he's also, as you said, a great supporter of Britain's uh, commerce. Uh, And he was a politician. He wasn't just a judge, he was a politician. He knew very well just how important the slave trade was to Britain's prosperity and to places like Liverpool, where it was essential in those areas. So he, he, as in some set, to some extent, but in this case, he equivocated. He pretty much dismissed the case because of the rain had shown that the idea of the insurrection was wrong. And then he sent the case back to be tried again, but not for murder, but for another insurance claim. And at this stage, the Gregsons gave up. And so no trial occurred. So the crew, all the people who were involved in the murder, got away with it. To modernise, um, looking back, the decision is hugely unsatisfactory. The decision did not challenge the slave trade. Uh, in fact, it, it largely endorsed the status quo. Um, and we're talking 1783, aren't we? And, and how did contemporaries view the decision? How did it affect the slave trade? And, and, and what was the, the impact on the, the, the abolitionist movement? I think you said right at the outset, there was a very swift change in, in public opinion. And it was only just over 20 years later, that the slave trade was abolished. Um, so how did that all happen and how did the Zong fit into that? You're absolutely right, it was, it was an unsatisfactory result. And in fact, the very fact of how unsatisfactory it was, people murdering other people and being able to get away with it and the grotesqueness of this all being under an insurance claim 
really caused all sorts of consternations. I mean, I think it's no exaggeration to say this is one of the most consequential cases, not just in insurance law, but in all of British history. I can't think of many others. Because for a political movement, what you often need is a cause celeb. You need something that people can get their teeth around. Because it's no mistake to say, no, no, no overreaction to say that the Zong really kickstart the abolitionist movement. There were abolitionists around. Granville Sharp had been an abolitionist for 20 years, but there hadn't been many. But this particular case came at a particular moment, the end of the American Revolution, when Britain was thinking about what its relationship was to the rest of the world. It came at a particular time when people were wondering about uh, the morality of the slave trade. And it encouraged people like Thomas Clarkson, who became one of the great anti-slaverists, and William Wilberforce, after whom my professorship is named in the 17, in 1785, James Ramsey, uh, another early abolitionist, to really say that this was a major sin. This was something that was a sin that Britain was engaged in. And what was clear about the song is that this was a British ship with British sailors tried in a British case, which showed British inhumanity to other people. It made it very apparent that the slave trade was a horrific institution, immoral in all its ways. And between 1783 and 1787, when the abolitionist campaign really kicked off, and between 1783 and 1789, when the first motion to abolish the slave trade came in front of the House of Commons uh, by William Wilberforce, Britain transformed itself from a nation which basically accepted slavery and thought the slave trade was a useful addition to Britain's commerce, to being a nation which thought the slave trade was immoral. If the French Revolution hadn't occurred, the abolition of the slave trade would have probably occurred before that. And we have to think about the, the importance of it in two particular ways. The first one is that this was, a, this was a movement supported by the Prime Minister, William Pitt the Younger, led by one of the leading politicians, William Wilberforce in government, supported by hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, almost all the population of Manchester, for example, signed a petition against the slave trade, which went from four or five years, went from nothing to everything. We can't think of any modern movement that's like it. So it really was absolutely pivotal in, in the creation of the anti-slavery movement. The other thing it was absolutely pivotal in was the creation of what I might say is political culture, which is a really big claim to make. But all the things that we think of now in terms of political protest, petitions, marches, the highlighting of particular cases, the am amassing of large amounts of material which you then present as, as, as evidence to say that something is wrong, all the things that we just automatically assume about political protesting nowadays came out of the abolitionist movement and were very closely connected to the cause celeb of the Zong in 1783. Trevor, that was fascinating, so thank you for that. But finally, I live in Bristol, where um, Edward Colston's statue was, was led to a watery grave last year. Why do you think that it's important for us now, in 2021, to study this chapter of history? What do we learn from it that benefits us today? Edward Colston was the deputy governor of the Royal African Company. Uh, the governor of the Royal African Company was the monarch, James II. The Royal African Company was founded by Charles II. When you attach something royal to an institution like the Royal African Company and then to the slave trade later on, you're suggesting that it's something that the whole nation is invested in. And I think one of the things that we need to remember and why the Zong is important as a moment which transformed 
uh, British society in all sorts of ways. So until that moment, and really certainly before the 1760s or so, just about everybody in Britain not only was connected to slavery in some sort of way, you didn't have to own slaves, you only had to eat a cake, which was produced by slave-produced sugar, or smoke a pipe produced by slave-produced tobacco to have some connection with slavery. As that just shows the depth of involvement of all of us in slavery during the 17th and 18th century, from a royal family to the housewife in the Hebrides who would take sugar with her tea. We were all invested in it. But the second thing, which I guess is something which you'd also say, is that it is possible to change. Bazong showed that within a few years, due to the efforts of black abolitionists like Equiano, the enslaved people who resisted slavery within the Caribbean and North America, white abolitionists like Wilberforce and Thomas Clarkson, who devoted their lives to the abolition of the slave trade and then to slavery, that massive changes can occur. And if we think of things today which seem like they can't be got rid of, like modern slavery, which is a, a scourge of today's society, one of the things we can look back on and say is that slavery in the 18th century was much more fundamentally part of British life, was supported by all sorts of people and all sorts of climbs from the royal family downwards, but we got rid of it. And by we, it means a large number of ordinary people, black and white, throughout the British Empire, and they did so in what in historical terms was a relatively short amount of time. Trevor, that was absolutely wonderful, really insightful, learned a huge amount through that, so thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, and please rate, review and share it. It really does help. Please also listen to another of our podcasts, Taxing Matters, which is hosted by my brilliant colleague, Alice Kemp. Insurance Covered is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you and I hope you have a lovely day.